0: Welcome back to Pod is a Woman, an honest, unfiltered conversation about the current state of politics and pop culture from three veterans of the Obama White House who also happen to be friends. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna this week we celebrate international women's day and as the second interview in our series of women making history for women's history month we have erica armstrong dunbar joining us she is a professor at rutgers university and a historian you know we know that in order to build
1: stronger together we have to really go back in our history and learn the lessons from the past so it is a true pleasure and privilege to get to listen to dr dunbar as she helps us dig into that past.
0: And there is so much to cover. So let's jump right in. Erica Armstrong Dunbar is the Charles and Mary Beard Distinguished Professor of History at Rutgers University and the National Director of the Association of Black Women Historians. She's published three books, one of which was a finalist for the National Book Award in nonfiction. That book is Never Caught, The Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave. Welcome to the pod as a woman, Erica.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. It's good to be here.
0: We're so excited to have you. You are our second woman we talked to as a part of our Women Making History series for Women's History Month. And to start, we'd love to hear about your background and where your passion for history originated from.
2: Yeah, you know, I think I feel like I'm a really fortunate woman because I grew up in a house where people read books um, and appreciated books. I, uh, I went to a small Quaker school in Philadelphia. And, um, you know, I feel like everybody was reading books around me quietly, right? Because that's what you do in the Quaker world. Everything is quiet. Uh, but, you know, to be honest, I, I, even as a, as a young person, I didn't see myself in the books that I read. And so, I'm, you know, I'm coming of age in the 70s and and 80s. And it wasn't until sort of much later on in my kind of late high school, early college career that I, I even read books about history or even fiction that centered the lives of, of Black women. So for me, it was, you know, I, I had a, a wonderful education, but it was uh, missing sort of core components. And. So now, you know, fast forward, I, I think I had that, um, that interest, that engagement. And then someone said to me in college, Erica, maybe you should think about becoming a historian. And my first response was, well, how much money do you make doing that? <laughs> you know, like, am I gonna be able to pay my bills? And then um, when I was assured that I would, uh, I, you know, I committed myself to telling the stories of women, but in particular, Black women. Whose lives have really, at least up until that point, had really not been centered in any of the kind of American history that I ever read growing up. And so now I get to to do that every day, all day.
0: I think a lot of us share that same experience of these aha moments as we realize what we didn't learn in school. And you're talking about these core components that were missing from your your textbooks, your history books. Can you tell us some specifics about what you learned in women's history in school versus what you now know to be true as a historian?
2: I mean, I didn't learn women's history, like, until college, I Mm -hmm. think, honestly, or at least, you know. You know, we we have a field now known as women's history. And I think what's important to remember is that as a field that doesn't even develop until the 1980s, 70s, 80s—that's when we start to see universities and colleges develop women's studies programs that became departments in this very kind of interdisciplinary way of studying. So, when I was in school, there there really was no such thing. Um, when I went to graduate school, was the moment when we started to read these texts that were written by pioneer historians and others who were writing about women's history. So it was everything from, um, you know, suffrage to um, to slavery to it was just open. And in in some ways, you know, for me as a historian, it made my work not easy to do, but it there was definitely a space for my work. Uh, There was no elbowing my way at the table because there was no one sitting at the table sort of doing the work. And especially, you know, that's women's history kind of writ large. But when we drill down and we talk about the experiences of of women of color and in in particular black women, you know, like there were two seats, not even at the table for that.
3: That's so true. And it's fascinating that you talk about the evolution of women's history and then being able to drill down into women of color. And so often in our history and even in women's history, black women are so overlooked, but they have played such a role in our history and in the resistance. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What resistance means for black women?
2: Yeah. You know, I think sort of growing up, yeah, I'll I'll recant a little bit about what I I just said about never learning any women's history. There was always like, um, in a, in a history book somewhere, there was always a little picture of Harriet Tubman. Right. So there's one little picture of Harriet Tubman and then, you know, somewhere nearby was probably Frederick Douglass. Right. And they got about, Oh, maybe a half a page, if that, uh, in terms of a write up space in the textbook. And, um, To me, that always, you know, that always presented as problematic, even when I was a child and didn't understand, didn't have the terminology um, to explain it. But I think we can see from the very beginning when we look at this nation's history, uh, even though women haven't always been centered, we know that they were. We know Mm -hmm. that they are. We know that uh, that they have quote been resisting in part because there have been structures and institutions created to keep women either subdued or in their quote rightful place away from seats of power. So at every turn, you know, when we we sort of think about these moments like the American Revolution or the Civil War, right, We, we like to glorify these moments in part because It's war. And we see that as an ultimate form of resistance. But, you know, many women historians, myself included, women are are resisting every day. We're doing that kind of everyday resistance. And it could appear in different forms. It could be dressing up as a man in order to fight in a war. It could be uh, uh, bothering your husband to vote for the person that you are not entitled to vote for yet because suffrage hasn't been granted to you. Um, It could be refusing to uh, purchase goods at a specific store because, you know, they refuse to serve black people. So these are like the forms of everyday resistance that really has made up, um, I think, the sort of center of, of power resistance boycotting protest in this nation. Whenever we think about the major protests in this nation, whether we go back to the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, there's always women who are organizing these protests. Yeah, the brothers are out front. Yeah, they're the one, you know, they're the leaders of the 50s and 60s, but always behind and not too far behind. It's always women who are organizing these churches, who are organizing protesters, who are making the signs, who are running off the flyers, who are driving people back and forth. They're the ones giving the sort of power, the energy to movement. And we can see that just about in every major social movement across american history
1: you're so right and when it comes to laws and the legal structure if we look at the constitutional convention one of the most momentous moments in our country's foundation not a woman not a person of color can you start there knowing how far we have to go and walk us through some of those key moments from history that our audience should know and exist and kind of dig a little deeper in.
2: Yeah. You know, I think we have, um, we always like to go back to the constitution and there's a reason for that. It's because, you know, that is the sort of framework, the legal framework for this nation. But I actually think we need to sort of go back a little bit before that, um, Because, you know, the nation is created right in the 1770s, 80s, this revolutionary era. But realistically, the the legal doctrine that that remained intact from before the founding of the nation until later was coverture. And that was, you know, the understanding that it was a a legal doctrine that, um, you know, upon marriage, a woman's legal rights and her her obligations were all kind of um, subsumed by her husband, right? And so this basically meant that a woman before the United States uh, was founded and after was seen through the lens of a man, whether Mm -hmm. it was her husband or her father. Uh, And we see this, even when we go and we think about the first president of the United States as we're talking about this revolutionary era, George and Martha Washington marry. Martha's married one time before George. Right. And she brings this huge estate with her to to their marriage. And, you know, my my grandmother would have laughed and said that, you know, George Washington was the one who came up when he married Martha. because <laughs> Martha was the one with the money um, and much, of course, of that wealth took the shape of of enslaved people. But what was really interesting was that although that wealth was hers and by law was technically not George Washington's, he was the one who had the right to control it. He controlled her estate, every piece of it, her enslaved folks, uh, every piece of her wealth. So we can go back to the founding of the nation and think about someone like George Washington and say, hmm. Okay, we see where coverture is playing out there. And that law, really, coverture, that, that remains intact. We move through the, the early 19th century. You know, women aren't allowed to own property, literally. They are technically not allowed to own property. Uh, we, ha- we see over the, the beginning of the 19th century, some of those laws begin to loosen up. Sometimes um, women are allowed to own property if their husbands are incapacitated. Right. And we we follow this kind of this trend of the law actually oppressing women. And this is these are all women I'm talking about right now Mm -hmm. that women aren't allowed to be on juries. And it's really, you know, not until the uh, late eighteen hundreds where those laws start to to change in places like Wyoming, uh, which is one of the first to allow women to sit on a jury. And this is after the Civil War. Right. This is after the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendment to the Constitution have been passed and ratified so that uh, slavery is over. There's supposed um, uh, equal protection under the law and citizenship and the right to vote has been given to to men, black men. No woman. Is voting, at least not on Mm -hmm. a national level, It's happening in in various places and states and what have you. But it's not really until the 20th century that we see the law change in order to protect women, women's rights, not just protect them, but to acknowledge them as citizens of the United States. I, I had a conversation with my my son the other day, he's 16, and he got his first uh, ATM card last, uh, last year. Oh and we were talking about credit cards. And I'm like, you know, you got to use this responsibly. And I, of course, because I'm a historian, a poor child, he's always got to hear history. <laughs> I, you know, I started telling him about how Women did not have the right, married women could not get credit cards until the mid-1970s. Wow. I was born in the mid early 1970s. So, um, you know, when we think about this history, we call it history, we think about it as long ago and far away, not so much.
3: That's amazing that you point that out in just how recent the history is for so many of these rights to be gained and there's this constant need to continue to fight. But I look at things like elections and elections mattering and we all worked for Barack Obama and when he was elected and we had our first black president, people thought, well, isn't that enough? Once we gain one right, isn't that enough? Aren't we post-racial? And that's never the case. Why do people feel like we should stop fighting once we gain a right?
2: Yeah. You know, I, I, in some ways, I think people are, are checking off boxes. Um, it sort of reminds me of what happens after the Civil War and black men are given the right to vote. And it's like, OK, well, we've done that work. <laughs> men are check. men are check the box. Uh, black men. Can, now, we know that they were disenfranchised throughout you know, much of the nation, but technically they were supposed to have the right to vote. Um, you know, this goes back to sort of notions about value and importance, presence, um, so that, you know, we have a Black president, uh, Barack Obama becomes president. Okay, we've done that work. Um, but there are a whole bunch of us, half the nation, more than half the nation, that may or may not see themselves in in Barack Obama, no matter how good of a president we may have uh, assumed him to be, right? Mm-hmm. That. There were women asking the question, okay, and and I think two things can happen here. You can be um, supportive of a nation changing, right? And having a black president, but you can also expect additional change, right? There's no no time limit shelf life on when change has to stop or start that realistically, You can support a Black man as president, but also say, "Okay, when's the next woman coming? When are we going to have a woman as president of the United States? Because, you know, honestly, as I said before, we do the work. Mm -hmm. We know that. Right. And so, um, you know, what was so um, infuriating and disheartening in the 2016 election, because many people, myself included, thought that this moment was going to happen, right? That there was going to be uh, a a woman Mm -hmm. in the White House. Uh, And when that didn't happen, and when it didn't happen in large part due to white women voters who did not vote for Hillary Clinton, That was a moment where we all kind of stopped and scratched our head and asked, "Okay, wait, what's going on here? And this has everything to do with internalizing this value structure placed upon men and women and who is supposedly fit to lead. And this all goes back to what I said in the very beginning of this conversation about coverture, who controls, who leads. And we still have, I think, a significant amount of, of work to do.
1: You, you, you're talking to the right crew because we agree <laughs> with you. <laughs> you know, and it is, you know, when we were all there for President Obama's inauguration, we saw slow but steady progress. A lot of people started coming out and saying we weren't seeing fast enough progress. And, you know, there was this huge backlash. And we saw it even with the Tea Party Um, Republicans forming. I remember early in the administration, uh, my email getting published and just getting this onslaught of racism. Then we had Trump. And I think Trump was a complete backlash. We're now in this kind of weird moment where we know that we need real reform And some legislation has started to pass, whether it's the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. There's been some attempt at uh, voting reform, but then there's the backlash attempt in Georgia and in Iowa and other states. What does history teach us about this moment? And how do we find our
2: potential? Mm, That is such a great question. And I'm, you know, my first response is that. This is predictable. If we look at history, right? Whenever there is change, whenever there's a shift, always done by the will of the people, right? And and that's, I think that's really important to, to mark because change doesn't happen unless the majority of the people are behind it. We know that no matter the good intentions of folks in Washington, change ain't happening unless their constituents are holding their feet to the fire and they're in the streets and they're marching and they're demanding um, certain things. And with every sort of major shift in this nation, when we think about um, race, gender, equity, issues around equity, there's this moment of kind of jubilation where you're like, okay, look, this is the moment of progress things are going to happen. This is uh, an important moment. And and there's this kind of hilarious um, expectation that's always sort of never met, right? In one way, shape, or form. And I think that's sort of um, the, the next step is always a backlash. It's usually a conservative backlash, right? So what I see happening less than six weeks after, you know, the inauguration to me is extremely predictable. If we go back to the civil war, once again, I keep going back to the civil war. If we go back to the civil war when, you know, 4 million people are emancipated from slavery from 400 years of enslavement, that period in which black men and women are given opportunities, men to vote, Um, to own property, to uh, find their loved ones, to live, right? To live, uh, to be free. That is so short-lived that it was almost Mm -hmm. like a a blink of an eye and it was over. Like, I, I imagine what it would have been like to have been a recently enslaved person set free in the 1870s and you blink and reconstruction is over and all the federal troops are removed from the South and sharecropping takes over and you're disenfranchised and the Klan is lynching folks. It's like, okay, wait, what is freedom? Mm -hmm. What is that supposed to be? So this backlash, we see it with, with the civil rights movement. You know, when we think about the 50s, 60s, and the 70s was an era of, I don't know, disco fog, maybe. But then we jump to the 80s, it's a backlash, a conservative backlash once again. So, you know, when I talk to my Black friends about post Obama, I think the minute he was elected, most of us like tightened our belts and were like, okay, buggle up, because we know what's going to happen eventually. Mm-hmm. I don't think we assumed it would be what it was, but like I said, predictable. Now, what do we do with that? I think you know history is great because it allows us, it, it's a, a prognosticator, right? It allows us to, to see what went wrong in the past and to in some ways predict what could or might happen in the future. And I think what we know is that there's going to be this constant back and forth, right? Mm -hmm. A constant back and forth between progress and the opposite of progress, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we all know that until the demographics of this nation change significantly, and we all know that they are, and until, let's take women, for example, until women actually encounter True equity, meaning they're not making 80 cents to a man's dollar, right? Meaning there aren't just a few of them at the, you know, in the boardroom or um, at the surgeon's table, right? Until we find our way to that kind of level playing field, I think we are prepared for this back and forth. And what we saw happen in this most recent election reminded us of the power of women when we think about what happened in Georgia in particular. We know who was behind that. Mm -hmm. Yes, we do. We know. And and once again, not surprising at all. And and literally changed, literally changed the nation. Um, So I think that what we have to acknowledge is that there's going to be a sort of back and forth but Nothing will change unless there's a push, unless it is demanded, right? And that was one of Frederick Douglass's like, you know, famous quotes that you're not going to get anything. You're not going to make, have your demands met unless you make the demands to begin with.
3: That's right. And that's so interesting that you say that. And I think about it in this way of us taking two steps forward, one step back constantly as we push forward. And as we are looking back in history and using that to tell a, our way forward, to predict our way forward, what should we be focused on now as a country and as women?
2: Mm. There's so, there so <laughs> many. Do you, we have time? <laughs> there's, right, there's uh, you know, I don't, I don't have one thing. And, and then I, you know what? I think that is um, sometimes we fall into a trap of thinking, okay, what's that one thing. And part of that is prag- being pragmatic, like, okay, taking one goal at a time, but I actually think it has to, if we're going back to the kind of civil war, America revolutionary um, kind of metaphor, there's gotta be a kind of an assault on multiple levels. Right. And when we're thinking about, um, you know, next steps or goals for women and equity, um, I think we know that it has to happen in terms of the workplace. We know that it has to happen in terms of um, income equity, that there's no opportunity for women to actually stand shoulder to shoulder with men if we're not being paid the same thing for the jobs that men do. In addition to that, it's also understanding the specific, um, the specificity connected to many women, not all women's lives. How are you going to help um, those with children um, to do the work that perhaps their male counterparts do without concerns around childcare. And, you know, in this moment of COVID, that has been one of the main conversations about how the burden of childcare has fallen squarely on the shoulders of working women who are trying to, you know, balance uh, keeping their jobs? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, we and know. mean meanwhile, your kids, you know, on the computer, and if they're a third grader, they're learning their times tables or whatever new math looks like these days. You know, you're trying to 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 do both, and all of the studies, all of the articles are telling us that the majority of this burden has fallen on the shoulders of women. That's a work. Okay. That's a workplace at home. Uh, And as someone who does a lot of her work at home, I write quite, you know, most of my writing takes place at home. I had to wait till my kid went to bed, you know, for many years, you all, you know, you all know that it's uh, when you steal these moments and the, what I'm trying to say is those moments shouldn't be stolen. Right. They should be given to everyone regardless of whether or not you have uh, children or or not. Um, And I I feel like right now there's a lot of synergy. Um, We shouldn't think about kind of movements or protest in silos because we're all kind of pushing for the same thing and that's humanity, right? Mm -hmm. That's citizenship, it's equality, it's freedom. So whether we're thinking about Um, Black Lives Matter, or we're thinking about income equity for women, or we're thinking about um, marriage equality, you know, all of, I I feel like there's so much um, energy. And then many of these, you know, spaces, folks are overlapped, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're you're giving money to this cause and that cause, you're marching the street for this and wearing a pink hat for that. And you're, you know, but ultimately, my, as a historian, I know that if we marshal this energy and we really push for you know, a human rights movement, then all of the things that we've been talking about, you know, all of them are priorities.
0: You're speaking about humanity and these collective experiences. And as a writer, you focus your work on what you refer to as these uncomfortable concepts that are associated with deep pain. How important is it for us to collectively acknowledge and hold space for these painful, uncomfortable truths in our history in order to move forward?
2: Oh, that is such a good question. You know, because the one thing Americans are not very good at is um, acknowledging trauma acknowledging grief that follows trauma anger that follows trauma and then some kind of resolution right we, we like and this has everything to do with the way we try to construct American history as this exceptional history right that um, we, we've we figured it out um, and one of the things that I'm focused on is like no we have to acknowledge that for just about every group every, constituency that walks this nation right now, we've encountered trauma, challenge, violence. For some, of course, it's worse than others if we have to measure. Um, But one of the things that's very clear is you don't know, I'll go back to my grandmother again, who would would tell me, Erica, sometimes you don't know what's good until you've lived through the bad. And I think that for women, uh, for, for people of color, who've been in kind of marginalized um, situations, you can look back at your past, right? And your past, not just your own, but the past of your ancestors. And you, you, you have to acknowledge progress. There has been, that's, it's, you know, undoubtedly there was progress. But it also, and, and, and you can um, live with that progress and enjoy it in some ways, but it also makes you realize, well, if we went from point A to point B, then now we've got to go from point B to point C. Mm-hmm. And we can, and we should do it. And one of the ways that you have to sort of remind folks of, uh, of progress is pointing out the trauma, the tragedy, and or triumph. So, yeah, I mean, get ready, get uncomfortable. Uh, And that's part of what I think that's the work of, you know, when you start therapy with a psychologist, you don't go in and expect that you're just going to talk a little bit and everything gets better. No, it gets like terribly uncomfortable and (laughs) you don't want to go. And you, you know, but you know that you have to get to that level of discomfort Mm-hmm. In order to move forward and as a nation, forget history, but as a nation, that's where we are right now. We've got to get real uncomfortable. We've got to ask these questions that make uh, your skin crawl, that make you stand up straight in your chair, clinch your, your little behind and ask <laughs> the question, you know, what does it mean when we see law enforcement murdering black and brown people across this nation we why is it that this isn't something that is not new right this is something that we know that there's a history behind it and yes it is going to be uncomfortable and yes there's going to be disagreement but until we go there we won't leave there that's
3: right my pastor always says you Growth never comes from a place of comfort. You have to get really uncomfortable with a number of concepts. And I told you earlier, you know, I'm from Chicago and I live right down the street from Evanston, Illinois. And recently the town made um, headlines because they are offering reparations to black people in the community to use on housing. And I just wanted to get your take on that and what you think about reparations as a whole and that of this for a very progressive city to be making this effort?
2: Ooh, that's the bomb question. You know, (laughs) that's the question that historians always like run from figure out who's going to ask that question and then run for run out of the room Um, in part because, you know, I don't know how. And and this is me talking as a historian of of the African-American experience and as a black woman. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite certain how you quantify I don't know how you quantify the loss, the trauma, the violence to get to something that is reparative, right? Right. Doesn't mean that we sh- there shouldn't be reparations. I'm, I'm struggling with what that looks like. Clearly it's not a $1,400 check that's going to come, you know, whenever, you know, right. it, it's not something like, it's got to be systemic. It's got to be institutionalized. It's got to be, uh, and, and what I will say is, When and if we do figure out this model for reparations, that it will be just that, a model for other groups who have been um, marginalized, discounted, Mm -hmm. discredited. So if we get it right, and I, I personally think it all goes back to education. Uh, access to education and opportunity. Of course, there's got to be income equity as well. But we know that right now, the way the educational system is structured in this nation, that that is really the portal that one walks through in order to, to access opportunity, wealth, success. And then if you are building prisons based upon the number of, black and brown children in fifth grade classrooms, right? Mm. If you're basing, you know, this this prison industrial complex based upon your expectation that the half, I live in Philadelphia, so that half of, of our city's youth will not graduate from high school. We know that's the key right there. We know that it's education. So I don't have a recipe for reparations, what I have are suggestions or a meditation on it, and I think that it all comes back to um, to education. Well, I
1: I agree, and I think you know what's so frustrating to me is the broken promises in America's history. Because of course, there was actually reparations signed by President Abraham Lincoln before President Johnson did away with it. And I find it fascinating that actually two Republican presidents signed reparations in our history because President Reagan signed reparations for Japanese Americans, which actually were delivered. So I agree there's so much more we have to do to repair those promises. But if we can focus on our history, I'm hopeful we have a chance in the future. I keep wondering because, you know, I I love your historical portrait. Is there anything different at this moment in time that could give us some hope? And I think about the private sector's involvement in the fight for equality. I mean, you've gone into the U.S. chamber and it says erected by these men. And, you know, I wonder, is that a little different? Or is there something that you would say
2: historically... Well, this is a first. You know, I think in terms of firsts, um, we saw something happen, you know, in January, at least in terms of the first, you know, woman vice president. Um, yes. And that, you know, that's nothing to sneeze at, right? I think that we acknowledge that as a major signal of of possibility of opportunity. I actually don't look to corporate America to to signal our our progress or our possibility. They're going to fund it if it benefits them, right? But I'm actually looking to this Generation Z, these Zoomers
3: who are- These Gen Z kids.
2: They are, you know, using these phones and iPads and technology to, uh, and, and are doing it in this kind of very sort of subtle yet bold way um, to, to acknowledge, make us all acknowledge that they have a voice and they may not be able to vote yet, but um, that they're here. And they're also coming of age at a moment in which many of them only knew a black president. Many of them, of course, understood marriage equality. Of course, my friend has two mommies. Like I'm thinking about my kid's generation, None of that is weird to at least him. And so I do think that um, this, the landscape has shifted because of the years of protest. Like we've gotten to this point, a little bit of a tipping point culturally, a cultural sea change that has prepared this next generation of citizens. You know, we're passing the baton to them and they're going to take, I think, uh, they'll take progress to a level that we were unable uh, to accomplish, in part because of the work that that's been done for for over a century.
0: This has been such a wonderful conversation, and as a takeaway in closing, we'd love to know what is a moment in women's history that we all should know, but many don't.
2: Hmm. One moment in women's history. <laughs> you know. I'm not real. I'll be honest. I'm not super good with the sort of come up with one moment. I'm I'm more of a 30,000 feet approach and understanding that the nation's history can't be told completely if we don't look at the accomplishments of women, if we don't integrate women into this story. So, you know, I, I spend, I get to spend my days reading and writing about enslaved women in particular, and recently wrote a book about about Harriet Tubman. And I think that um, we all think we know Harriet Tubman, but we really don't know Harriet Tubman. Um, At least we don't know her as a full, complete human and woman. I'd say that biography is a great way to get to know history, right? It's a a great um, way to read history. But I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna push folks to think about learning history through the lens of the unknown. That if we really wanna know American history, if we really wanna think about women's history in particular, go to the library when they open, look in the old microfilm room, read the newspaper in 1918 and find that woman, that article about a woman, or perhaps she was a journalist herself that nobody's really heard of. Read about it, learn about it, and understand how her footprint has mapped um, the footprints that came ahead of her and um, speak the honest story about, about the nation's past.
0: Erica Armstrong Dunbar, historian and the national director of the Association of Black Women Historians. What a pleasure to learn from you today.
2: Thank you for having me. You all are great. Oh my goodness, this was
0: so fantastic. Thank you.
1: I love learning from Dr. Dunbar, she was fantastic. And I think that the things that stuck with me is that Generation Z, that's our potential. And this week's theme of International Women's Day was Choose to Challenge. And I know a lot of those resources are even available from your public library online. You can search through all of your Old archives of newspapers. And I would love to see more real women's stories lifted up online. So choose to challenge this Generation Z.
3: And as we're looking at women who are challenging systems, our podcast of the week goes to Megan Markle. By now, many of you have already seen excerpts or seen the entirety of her interview with her husband, Harry and Oprah, and to be able to speak your truth and to speak about fear and to open up about your vulnerability and also your experience with racism was something that I really took to heart as a biracial woman in this country, and I just, my heart goes out to her, and her experience is one that is not uncommon to the black woman in this country, but it's something that has not been as public as this interview shows. So our, our hearts go out to her, and we hope that she will continue to speak her truth.
0: And for our shout-out this week, it's going to Sue Bird, Alex Morgan, Simone Manuel, and Chloe Kim, for incredible female athletes who've teamed up to launch a new company aimed at focusing attention on women in sports in the media. It's called Together, and this is actually a double shout-out because my younger sister, Monica Medellin's production company, Narnar Nar Honeys, which focuses on women of color in sports, actually did one of their first docuseries for this production company. So, so many incredible women making moves and changing the landscape and representation in women's sports shout outs all around next week we are moving from sports to fashion and we actually have the legendary diane von Furstenberg on pod as a woman you don't want to miss this conversation so make sure to subscribe and have a great week until then